Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. You're about to listen to a historical episode of Dark Poutine. After episode 149, you will find Scott is no longer with the show. In an effort to maintain continuity and offer listeners as many episodes as possible, we are leaving the episodes in which he co-hosted intact. Thank you. Welcome to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, creator and host. With me, as usual, is my good friend and co-host, Scott Hemingway. Say hello, Scott. Hey, everybody. That's it? Yeah, I'm I'm still in a bit of a mushroom rage from our pre-show. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, go and watch the pre-show on our Facebook page, and you'll yeah. understand why Scott, yeah. Scott gets upset by mushrooms. Well, especially when you then get a video of somebody eating a mushroom sent to you personally. It's yeah. It's just... Oh. But anyway, we have something a little different this week as far as our disclaimer goes, so here it comes. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Uh, thanks to Tyler from the Minds of Madness for doing our uh, disclaimer this week. Much appreciated. It gives it a little more cachet to have the voice from Minds of Madness taking care of that for us. Yeah, and, and like, no offense, Mike, but that was so much better. I know. That, that wow. Yeah, he, he's he's got a, quite a voice. No, that was brilliant. Uh, Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Listener discretion is strongly advised. We're not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We're two ordinary Canadians chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Grab yourself a double-double and a Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. This is episode 68. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, that's one after 67? You are correct. Two before 70. Two before 70. Woo! A reminder for those of you planning to go to CrimeCon but have yet to buy tickets, if you want 10% off your ticket, use Poutine19 when buying your ticket on CrimeCon.com site. What was that code, Mike? Poutine and the number 19. So, Poutine19? That's correct. Because we know you're all going. Uh, we hope so. You're all going. We know. Just go buy your tickets. And a thank you to Alan R. Warren for uh, giving out a bunch of books. Apparently, he said he was going to give out 12, but he ended up giving 50. Like That is just so awesome. Very generous. So that thank is... you very much, Alan. Yes, Alan. Um, thank you. We might be back uh, soon with another giveaway from him. He's a, he's a pretty cool guy. Uh, apparently so. That is really awesome. If you got one of Alan's books and you liked it, feel free to give him a review on Amazon.com or .ca or wherever you are. On with the show. Okay. <laughs> 
No, I no, I say no, Mike. Okay. This case brings us back to the provincial capital region of British Columbia, Victoria, in the district of Saanich. Beautiful area. We're going back almost 22 years to events that took place under the Craigflower Bridge in a waterway known locally as the Gorge. Mm-hmm. This is a case I remember. It's a story of bad girls, bullying, and racism that led to the beating, torture, and eventual brutal murder of a 14-year-old girl at the hands of people she believed to be her friends. Yeah, it's really, really a tragic case. It's uh, one that was huge in this area, in, in B.C. It in was Canada a huge well. story. Well, that's what I was going to I don't know how, how much it... Uh, got through Canada or into the States, but this is a this was huge news here in a really, really tragic case. After numerous trials, the perpetrators finally received what some call justice, but many were left feeling that the punishment was too light given the brutal circumstances of the crime. This, dear listeners, is the story of the murder of Rena Verk. Mm, yes. Can't believe it's been 22 years already. Yeah, there's still so much of it that's vivid in my mind. It's it's yeah, quite perplexing thinking that that was 22 years ago. Yeah. As all of the eight of the perpetrators in Rena's beating were between the ages of 14 and 16 at the time, we will not be referring to six of them by name. Their identities continue to be protected by Canada's Young Offenders Act. Only the two persons convicted of Rena's murder who were tried as adults will be named in the podcast. Yep. Victoria, British Columbia is a beautiful city with a long history. First inhabited by the Coast Salish peoples, then in the late 1700s, the Europeans began to arrive. First was Juan Perez in 1774, and then came James Cook mm -hmm. in 1778. The area was initially called Camosun, from the native word Camosac, meaning rush of water. In 1843, the Hudson's Bay Company built a trading post on the site, and after a brief stint of having the name of Fort Albert, it was quickly renamed Fort Victoria after the reigning British monarch, Queen Victoria. I had no idea. It was originally called Fort Albert. Incorporated as a city in 1862, Victoria took over from New Westminster as the provincial capital when BC joined Canadian Confederation in 1871. That I remember. Not the date, but I remember Because that. you lived in New West. Yep, yep. Although only 100 kilometers from both Seattle and Vancouver as the crow flies, Victoria still has a laid-back, small-town feel to it, possibly as it's only accessible by ferry and plane. Its beauty and reputation as a nice place to live is what attracted Manjeet Verk, Rena's father, to emigrate to the city from his hometown in New Delhi, India, in April of 1979 when he was just 22 years old. It would be a very dramatic uh, culture change going from New Delhi to Victoria. And, I moved uh, from Halifax to Vancouver when I was 23, and it was a big change for me. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Victoria is hands down one of the more beautiful places in Canada. If anybody's ever thinking of taking a nice vacation, head on down. Manjeet moved in with his sister, but soon met the love of his life, Suman Palan. From Manjeet Verk's book, Rena, A Father's Story, quote, Manjeet asked Suman one day, what do you think makes a good husband? And Suman calmly replied, someone who loves and takes care of his wife. Oh. So right away, Manjeet knew that he and Suman would work well together. That's beautiful. Some feathers were ruffled and needed smoothing due to a love relationship between Manjeet of the Sikh faith and Suman, whose family were Hindu. Further complicating things, 
Suman had been raised as Jehovah's Witness by her mom. The two were married on June 11, 1979, only two months after Manjeet had arrived in Canada. Manjeet became involved in the Jehovah's Witness Church in line with his wife's spiritual practice, even though his parents, now also emigrated from India, were uncomfortable with his choice of religion. Yeah, it's bound to happen. You've got, essentially got three religions at play there. And people tend to be very traditional. You know, sure. they, they want their family to follow the tradition that they set yeah, for them. Absolutely, so. especially, you know, around 19, in the late 70s. On March 10th, 1983, Manjeet and Suman welcomed their eldest daughter to the family. Weighing in at a healthy six pounds and nine ounces, Rina, meaning queen in Hindi and Punjabi, was born. Mm. Manjeet doted on young Rina, spending as much time as he could with her in her years before school. Two years later, another girl, Simran, meaning prayer, was born. Rina was a bit jealous that the attentions of her parents and others were now divided. Rina had even bit the baby on a finger at one point. <laughs> In 1988, the family welcomed a son, naming him Aman, meaning peace. Oh, I love these names. Yeah, the meaning behind them all is beautiful. The family traveled whenever they could, including back to Manjeet's homeland, India. He wanted his children and his wife to experience Indian culture firsthand because Suman had been born here in Canada as well. Mm -hmm. When Rena was 11, her rebellious side started to show itself. Rena would start fights with her mom over nothing. Rena started lying to her parents. Suman was upset that Rena cared little about her schoolwork and left her clothes lying about, and she didn't seem to care about her appearance. This was the beginning of tough times in the Verk household. Yeah, I mean, a lot of that sounds pretty typical for an 11-year-old having one myself. Yeah. The Verks found that Rena was being bullied at school. In fact, she had been since she'd started. Ugh. It was now starting to wear on her. Manjeet believed that Rena may have been slipping into a depression, which mm. might have explained her behavior at home. Rena also suffered from itchy eczema on her legs. This made her embarrassed to wear shorts or a bathing suit. She was extremely self-conscious. Yeah, that's tough. Although her parents taught her excellent values about inner beauty, Rena's classmates wouldn't let her forget about her external differences. Rena was insecure and had low self-esteem. It's that Western culture, right? Like, it's all about how you look yeah. and how you present. And Sounds like she had very wonderful parents Yeah, doing their best, but there's only so much you can do when you've got uh, yeah. external sources uh, chopping yeah. away at your self-esteem. Someone who stands out the way Rena did does not often have a good time at school. Deny as we might, we're still a pretty vain and materialistic society. Yeah, no, I won't even deny it. Sadly, we, we very much are. In May of 1994, the family moved into a bigger home and the kids changed schools. Perhaps, they thought, that would help Rena, but the bullying continued. Ugh, poor girl. The first friend Rena thought she'd made shunned her seemingly without reason. Rena was distraught. This school was not much better. No, oh, this poor girl. Really empathized with her. The bullying worsened. Rena was bigger than a lot of the other kids. She was called ugly. God damn it. Rena's skin was darker than most of her classmates as she was Indian. Mm -hmm. They teased her about her weight and for being taller than the other kids in class. They made fun of the dark, coarse hair on her face. She was called ugly, the beast, daddy, and bearded lady. <sighs> there were also, of course, many hurtful racial slurs. But remember, Mike, remember, the, it's called the good old days. Yeah. Rena's parents wanted the best for her. They had no clue how bad it was for their daughter at school. 
They got her a pet bird, hoping that if she had something else to focus on, she might begin to feel better. But that's not what happened, although she did love her pet bird, Peachy. I still want to give her a hug. Yeah. Rena did make a couple of friends who she hung out with watching movies sometimes. They also hung out at the nearby Rudd Park in the evenings. In the summer of 1996, Rena went to the park to meet her friends, but met a group of other kids loafing in the park, smoking cigarettes. They invited her to hang with them that night, and she did. Feeling accepted by the, quote, cool kids was new for Rena, so she stayed out longer than she should have, way past her curfew. Yeah, I think I can understand her thought process, though. Manjeet and Suman were upset by her choice of new friends. From Manjeet's book, quote, We reminded her of scripture that in part says, Bad association spoils useful habits, end quote. There's some truth to that. Yep. Rena liked that the other kids seemed to have tons of freedom, no curfew, and most of all, she was feeling accepted. So she began acting out even more at home. The Verks saw these kids as bad apples with little or no supervision. They were concerned about drugs, alcohol, and smoking in the group. They did not want Rena hanging out with them, but she persisted. Yeah, key word you use there is accepted. Uh, acceptance is such a, an important part of being uh, a child, a teenager. Yeah. Just the, wanting to be uh, accepted and well, to fit especially in. if you're somebody who already has self-esteem issues. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And Accept- most most kids do, but it sounds like hers were extreme. Yeah, yeah. It's just that yeah, where all you're wanting is to be accepted by your peers. One of the kids in the group said if she wanted to get away from her parents, it was easy to get into foster care. All you had to do was tell police that you were being abused. So Rena did just that. She lied to police about physical abuse at the hands of her parents. Police didn't press charges against the Verks as there was absolutely no evidence of physical abuse at all. But Rena ended up with her maternal grandparents perpetuating the lie about Suman and Manjeet abusing her. Oh, no. The grandparents fell for Rena's story, hook, line, and sinker. Oh, shit. Why would a child lie, right? Yeah, yeah. Rena also claimed that she'd been sexually abused while on a trip to India. She made unsubstantiated claims of sexual abuse against Manjeet, her father, and this devastated him. Oh, my God. In January of 1997, Manjeet Verk was arrested for sexual abuse of Rena and put into a jail cell awaiting arraignment. Holy shit. Manjeet was released pending a trial that was set to happen in July of that year, and he was ordered to have no contact with his oldest daughter. He continuously and vigorously denied abusing Rena. Wow, that's pretty powerful. I mean, I'm trying to put myself in that situation with my daughters and those claims and just thinking about how much that would hurt me. But oh my God. again, it's that whole, she's just, you know, wanting acceptance. And this is peer pressure. Her friends telling her these things will work. Yeah. And you'll get all that freedom you want. Yeah. Rena was saying now that she was uncomfortable with her grandparents and she was moved to the foster home that she wanted to go to. Oh, shit. Rena was late for curfew one night and claimed she'd been assaulted on the Galloping Goose Trail. Her foster mom got the RCMP involved, and folks started to see through Rena's lies to get what she wanted. Mm-hmm. The charges against Manjeet were stayed. In September, Rena realized that foster homes were not exactly what she wanted either. She had to do chores that she didn't have to do at home, and she still had a curfew. Rena came home with a lame apology. Mm. 
and from Manjeet's book, Rena, quote, I'm sorry, Dad, I didn't do it on purpose, sorry. <sighs> but she did follow up with, I'm willing to write a letter to Constable Scott Treble of Saanich Police Department to say that I told a lie and my father never abused me, end quote. <sighs> Police interviewed Rena once more to ensure that she was telling them the truth this time, and they left feeling that she was. The accusations against Manjeet went away. Yeah, thank God. I'm that'll do some damage to a family, though. Just the accusations alone will do mm -hmm. some damage to a family. But again, I, I think I can still empathize with her in just feeling like such an outcast. And here's this group. Yeah. And you're telling you but what the people in the group were also bullying her, too. Yeah, but again, when you're trying to fit in, when you desperately, desperately want acceptance from the cool kids, mm. you're not going to necessarily see it as bullying. It was clear that Rena was smoking and hanging out with a much tougher crowd, some of whom she'd met while in foster care. Mm. She was listening to rap, dressing like a rapper, and talking about gangs like Crips and Bloods claiming she was now in a gang. The Verks refused to give Rena money for cigarettes as they wanted her to quit, so she just bummed cigarettes from other smokers. I know how that went. My parents didn't like me smoking either. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure I wore a... Some bandanas in my day while listening to the rippity raps. <laughs> in October of 1997, Rena wanted to go back into foster care again. She left home, staying in the Kiwanis Emergency Youth Shelter for three days. There, she happened to meet a couple of girls. We'll call them J and D. These girls would be present around Rena's final moments. The girls saw Rena had low self-esteem and saw her as a mark. They began bullying her and making her do things for them. Even though Rena was a large girl, she weighed 182 pounds and was 5 feet 6, she was easily intimidated. She had a hard time fitting in with the others, was made fun of for her racial differences, having brown skin, curly, dark hair, and more coarse body hair than the white girls who were being so cruel to her. There were often threats of violence if Rena were not compliant to her bully's demands. To them, Rena was a pushover. And they were more than willing to exploit that, clearly. Yep. They'd even go so far as taking the clothes from Rena right off her back, mm. one time leaving her to walk home on a cold night in just a T-shirt after taking her sweatshirt from her. Rena probably saw it differently. She most likely felt, as many bullying victims do, that dignity was a small price to pay for feeling a part of a group. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. On Halloween, while Rena's parents were out, unknown to them, she had these friends over. Three days later, Manjeet found that his video recorder was missing, and Suman was missing $500 in cash and some of her pure gold Indian jewelry. Oh, shit. Rena admitted that her friends had been there. Even though Rena said she was afraid of how the other kids would react, the Verks called police to report the thefts. Yeah, uh, in their shoes, I would do the same thing. Mm -hmm. Rena was becoming hard to handle again. She started lying about her father again, saying he'd cut her wrists, showing her uncle scars from a suicide attempt she'd made on her own. Mm, shit. She landed in the ministry's care again, upset her folks would not buy her cigarettes. <sighs> Manjeet was formally cleared by the Saanich police in early November, but he and Suman still worried about Rena now in government care again. For sure, it's their daughter, and they seem like very loving parents, so no matter what, they're still going to be 
uh, concerned and worried about her. On November 14, 1997, Rena was to stay overnight at her parents' home just for a visit. A friend called her to come out for some Friday night fun. Rena didn't come home for her 11 p.m. curfew, although she had called about 20 minutes prior saying she'd be right home. Hmm. Suman thought she might have gone to her grandmother's house, but she did not. Suman called the group home, speaking to one of the girls she'd met in the shelter weeks earlier. The girl claimed that when she'd left around 11, Rena was still out with the other group of friends. Interesting. There was no sign of Rena anywhere, at least not with family or friends that they knew of. The next day, the Verks called Saanich police, who refused to call Rena a missing person quite yet. Perhaps she was out with friends somewhere. Her history led yep. them to believe. Yep, yep, no. Know. Typically, I'm going to want to jump down the authorities' throat for not acting quick enough. But with, yeah, in this situation, I, I can kind of understand it. Rumors were flying at Shoreline Secondary School. There was apparently a dead girl in the water in the gorge near Craigflower Bridge, just to the southwest. Adults and police soon caught on. Holy shit. After a tip on Friday, November 21st, a police helicopter flew over the gorge but saw nothing. A dive team was called in to search the area, and cops searched around the shoreline as well. That's where one of them found a semi-nude body in the weeds. Oh, shit, that's terrible. News teams were already on the scene trying to get a look and captured the police walking up the dock with the body covered by a white body bag. Police asked for and were provided a photo of Rena at around 5 p.m. At 2 a.m. that evening, an inspector came to the Verk home confirming their worst fears. It was Rena that they'd found in the water. She'd been involved in two fights near the bridge, and drowning was the presumed cause of death. Oh, poor parents, the news, my God. A 15-year-old girl named Kelly Marie Ellard had been bragging about having killed Rena, along with 16-year-old Warren Paul Glowatsky. They had been arrested a day before and charged with second-degree murder, and the ordeal of justice in Rena Verk's slaying began. As well, six other girls, all young offenders, were charged with aggravated assault in the beating of Rena Verk. The details of what happened that night began to emerge. A week before her death, Rena had called a boy. We'll call him Billy. He went to Shoreline Middle School with her. She'd called him a number of times in one day. Hmm. She yeah. said she liked him, but Billy didn't know who she was. Yeah. Rena asked Billy to come to Mac's convenience store to meet up. Billy agreed just to make the phone calls stop. He never intended to show up. Rena dejected, had waited at the store for hours. Oh, God, I think we've all been there and know that feeling of heartbreak. Billy later mentioned the phone calls to Jay, Rena's friend from the shelter. The boy was close with Jay and was aware that she knew Rena. Jay claimed that Rena had stolen her book of contacts and had been calling all her friends. Jay told Billy not to worry. Rena wouldn't be bothering him anymore. Billy didn't find that statement ominous until Rena's body had been found. Mm. Other people were telling Jay that Rena had told them Jay was saying mean things about them. They also said that Rena told them that Jay had fake eyebrows and also had AIDS. Okay. Jay was livid. Who was Rena to think she could make shit up about her and try to hurt her friendships? Mm. According to Rebecca Godfrey's book, Under the Bridge, in the next days, Jay's mother overheard one side of a conversation her daughter was having loudly with a friend. 
The conversation had turned from normal teenage girl stuff, boys, clothes, makeup, and music, to something more sinister. Jay was talking about digging a grave and alluring a girl to it. Possibly her name was Rhea. She was laughing intermittently with the other party. There they would push the bitch into the hole and bury her alive. Holy shit. When Jay hung up the phone, her mother asked who she'd been speaking with. Jay said it was Kelly Ellard. Nothing more was discussed about the conversation at that time. I Yeah, I'd just give it like, I'm pretty pissed and disgusted. That week at Shoreline School, Kelly Ellard, D, and Jay told some other friends they were going to beat Rena up for messing with Jay. There were no details as to time and place, but they assured their friends it was going to happen. I can't believe all of this because she was calling that boy. But what? also telling people that Jay had AIDS and well, fake eyebrows. From, who knows if that's true, that she was, but it's like, these are the kind of things that are leading to something That girls get upset about. Holy shit. It was Jay who called Rena that night to come hang out at Shoreline School soccer field for a party on November 14th under the full moon. Rena was hesitant to go at first, but she eventually agreed to meet Jay and Dee there. Rena partied with the others, around 30 kids in all. There were cigarettes, booze, and marijuana. Typical teenage party fodder. Mm-hmm. At around 8.30, the party got a little rowdy, and one of the boys threw a rock at the school. The janitor, who was in there cleaning up, called the police, who came quickly to break up the party. I, I, I hate to bring it up, but all I can picture is a uh, groundskeeper Willie. Yeah. Seeing the cops, the kids ran in different directions. Some went to the Comfort Inn, a group went to the old Craigflower Schoolhouse Museum, some kids went down under the Craigflower Bridge to continue the party, and others, Rena included, made their way to the nearby Max convenience store. Rena called home from a phone booth and told her mom that she'd be home in 20 minutes. This was the last time Suman heard her daughter's voice. Oh. J and D invited Rena down under the bridge for one last smoke. She reluctantly agreed. The girls didn't want to miss their chance. Both of the girls linked arms with Rena, leading the unsuspecting girl down the stairs to the underside of the Craigflower Bridge on the south side. Rena had no clue what was about to happen to her. Yep, understandably. Tension was thick in the air as they all stood smoking and looking at one another. There were only two boys in the group one of whom was Wayne Paul Glowatsky. All the rest were girls, including Jay, D, and Kelly Marie Ellard. Oh, yeah, I can imagine that uncomfortableness because they know what's supposed to happen, and so just everybody's standing around. Oh, jeez, oh, it gives me chills. And Rena had no idea. Yeah, yeah. Moments after arriving, Jay confronted Rena screaming in her face about what she'd been saying about her. Jay took a drag off her cigarette and violently stubbed it out on Rena's forehead, grinding it in. The fight was on. Rena was swarmed by seven girls, including Jay, D, and Kelly Ellard. Warren Paul Glowatsky was the lone male to join the attack. Rena was viciously kicked and beaten by the group as some others stood by watching. Glowatsky was seen kicking Rena in the head at least once during the initial attack. At some point in the beating, Rena moaned, I'm sorry, but the beating continued. Rena dazed, tried to escape up the stairs, but was pounced on by the group again. Finally, the other boy in the group had seen enough and pulled Glowatsky out of the pile, begging him to stop. 
Five of the other girls stopped fighting soon after Glowatsky did, but Kelly Ellard and another girl continued beating Rena for some time after. Then they tired and stopped as well. Rena, stunned, confused, bleeding, and badly bruised, staggered up the stairs and toward the north end of the bridge. She planned to take the bus home. After Rena left, all the rest of the kids dispersed, leaving only Kelly Ellard and Warren Glowatsky watching Rena staggering across the bridge. Kelly Ellard looked at Glowatsky and suggested they should go, quote, finish her off because she would probably, quote, rat on them. Ellard and Glowatsky followed Rena north and caught up with her. The pair dragged the stunned girl down over the bank near the water and began savagely beating her again. Kelly Ellard grabbed Rena's hair and smashed her face into a tree several times. Glowatsky pushed Rena down and the two began to kick, stomp, and punch Rena in the face and head, one holding her as the other one took their turn. When Rena was mostly unconscious, Glowatsky and Ellard dragged her by her arms down to the gorge waterway. This is when Rena's pants came off. They placed Rena in the water face down and waded in. Kelly Ellard alternated between holding Rena underwater with her hands and even stood on Rena's back and head at one point. Warren Glowatsky cheered Ellard on as the two discussed breaking Rena's arms in case she tried to swim away. After Rena drowned, the two watched her floating for a while. Ellard poked viciously at Rena's face with a stick. Leaving Rena floating in the water, the two walked back to the south end of the bridge and went their separate ways. A 16-year-old male that knew Kelly Ellard saw her walking not far from the Craigflower Bridge that night. The two were not friends, but Kelly stopped him and asked him for a cigarette. She said she was, quote, stressed out. She'd been in a fight with a girl whose head she'd held underwater at the gorge. The young man noticed Kelly Ellard did look wet, but she wasn't shivering in the cold. Holy fuck. That, like, just hearing the beating, uh... And it, went, it went on longer yeah. than we described it. I mean, it, it was torture. Yeah. And uh, I, as I, they're young, they're teenagers. And I try to always factor that in when thinking about the criminals, but I can't. This is just so malicious and so violent and so disgusting and, and intentional that I have nothing but disgust. Yeah. Like, oh. As they do, kids began to talk. Yep. Glowatsky and Ellard were no exception. The problem was that everyone at the school was talking about what they had heard and, you know, the telephone game, the way yeah. things go around, so it was tough to sort out the truth from fiction. Yeah. Even though adults and police were eventually aware of the situation, it was up to them to try and figure out what had happened. Cops got a break when an eyewitness from the first beating came forward to make a statement. This girl had seen the whole thing, including Glowatsky and Ellard following Rena southward across the Craigflower Bridge after the first beating was over. The day before Rena's body was found, police arrested Warren Glowatsky and Kelly Ellard, charging them with murder and aggravated assault. Six other girls, now dubbed the Shoreline Six, were also picked up and charged with aggravated assault on 14-year-old Rena Verk. See, this is the stupidity in criminal acts like this. It's hard enough to keep something a secret by yourself. You throw in 
seven others, not so excluding just Kelly Eller, just seven other people who were there. Like, there's no way in hell with young kids that's going to stay secret. No. Like, it's just like, it's just moronic, these people. Yeah. Police gingerly picked Rena out of the water after they'd found her. They transported her body for autopsy. Rena had clearly been savagely beaten. There was bruising and swelling under both eyes. Her cheeks were black and blue. Rena's lip was split open badly. Her nose was bruised, and there was blood in her nostrils. There were angry red marks on her shoulders, and her collarbone was bruised, all consistent with someone having stood on her. Mm -hmm. There was a circular cigarette burn on her forehead near her right eyebrow. On the left side of the back of Rena's head was a shoe print, as well as shoe print-shaped bruises on the left side of her back. <sighs> She'd been punched in the throat, and there was a bruise on the left side of her voice box. Rena's internal organs had been so badly battered that the coroner compared it to what is typically seen in a fatal car accident. My God. There was evidence of internal bleeding consistent with having been stomped and kicked. <sighs> Rena's brain was swollen and hemorrhaged from multiple contusions sufficient enough to cause a loss of consciousness. There was even a sneaker-marked shape bruise on the brain itself. Holy shit. There was a white, frothy substance in Rena's lungs indicating drowning as the mechanism of death. There were also pebbles in Rena's lungs indicated she breathed them in with her final breath while being held on the bottom. Oh. Rena had been alive when she was dragged into the cold water. Oh, my God. Wow. Yeah. On February 9th, 1998, three of the Shoreline Six pled guilty to the lesser charge of assault causing bodily harm on Rena Verk. The other three girls went to trial on February 13th, 1998, but they were also convicted of assault causing bodily harm. Mm -hmm. Throughout April and May, all of the girls received sentences ranging from a 60-day conditional sentence to a year behind bars. The identity of all these girls has been protected by the Young Offenders Act in Canada. Yeah, I mean, I can. I don't think they had in, the intention of participating in, in her death. They just wanted to teach her a lesson, you know. And uh, But, yeah, I don't think their intention was, like, let's go participate in her death. Yeah. yeah. On April 12, 1999, Warren Paul Glowatsky was put on trial as an adult for second-degree murder. Glowatsky's attorneys and the Crown both wanted a publication ban, saying it might affect the later trial of Kelly Marie Ellard. She had yet to be named publicly at the time. Oh, I gotcha. The judge ruled against the ban. The people of Victoria would be able to hear the details of what had gone on. Hmm. Although Glowatsky testified in his own defense... Justice Malcolm McCauley didn't buy much of what was said by the accused teen. Oh, I wonder what he said. He said on the whole, Warren Glowatsky's evidence was conveniently incomplete and improbable. I did not believe him. That's pretty definitive. <laughs> the Crown had succeeded in painting Glowatsky as a cold-hearted and remorseless killer. It was brought forward on multiple occasions that Glowatsky had admitted to killing Verk in a 187 with Ellard, which is the L.A. police code yeah. for murder and is used in rap songs. Well, they're just trying to be, you know, cool. young, young thugs. Yeah, cool. Yeah. yeah. It also came out that Glowatsky had laughed with his pals about the hair on Verk's buttocks after the crime. Oh, my God. Again, adding a racial aspect to the crime that's been often overlooked. Yeah, yeah, which it shouldn't be. No. 
Justice McCauley admonished Glowatsky as he sentenced him, saying, Violence is not a recreational activity. The death of Rena Verk and the shattered lives, including yours, are testimony to that. Mm, yeah, well stated. Glowatsky, who was a small, slight boy with black hair, called himself too short. Yeah, you weren't, you're not too short. He was a great rapper. You're yeah. an idiot. He was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole after serving seven years, and this is because he was only 16 at the time. Okay. He was sent directly to federal prison in Matsqui rather than a young people's institution. Well, good on that part. Little boy goes to big boy prison. Yeah, well, hey, murder somebody so violently, and guess what happens? Yeah. You go to big boy prison. Convicting Kelly Marie Ellard would be another matter entirely. Boy, howdy. She'd been running her mouth nonstop to any friend who'd listen about how she'd murdered Rena Verk, even embellishing the crime saying she'd broken Rena's arms and back. Her easy, self-serving lies made getting accurate statements problematic. Once in custody, she changed her tune completely, claiming innocence in Rena's death. How convenient. On May 13, 1999, appeals to try Kelly Marie Ellard as a young offender are squashed. She would be tried as an adult and identified in the press. Mm -hmm. On March 9, 2000, almost two and a half years after Arena's murder, Kelly Ellard finally went on trial. Many of the witnesses who testified in the trial must go unnamed due to publication bans as they were young people at the time. Yeah. Kelly Ellard's friends told the court how she'd been happy and proud of her role in murdering Rena. Wow. After deliberating, the jury found Kelly Ellard, now 17, guilty. Although she'd testified in her own defense, she was also seen as lying and unremorseful. Ellard stood stone-faced as she was sentenced to the minimum, life in prison, having to serve only five years before applying for parole. Jeez. Off to jail she went but this was nowhere near over for the Verks. No, and a lot of that cavalierness and smugness that was... It just carried on. Yeah, and it was like it, she was loathed and despised by everybody in, in the media and the public spaces, and she was certainly not helping her case by being just so cavalier and smug about the death of, of a wonderful person. Golowatsky appealed his conviction in November of 2001, maintaining it was Ellard who killed Rena, but he lost when the B.C. Court of Appeals upheld his conviction. Tragic. On February 4th, 2003, Kelly Marie Ellard, now 21, won an appeal for a new trial. Mm-hmm. It was determined that the prosecution had asked her 18 times during her testimony why others would lie about her. The basis of the appeal was that the Crown Counsel's cross-examination of the appellant was improper and resulted in an unfair trial. Really? Justice Donald wrote in his decision, quote, These questions to Kelly Ellard were not appropriate. There was no onus on Kelly Ellard to give an answer to such questions as to what may be in anyone's mind. Such questions have the unfair and improper effect of shifting the onus of proof away from the Crown and placing the onus on this accused. Remember, it is the Crown that must prove guilt of Kelly Ellard. That onus never shifts, end quote. And I actually agree with this judge mm. on this. Yeah. As I looked into it, I agree that the prosecution messed up. 
they should not have tried to get Kelly Eller to prove her own innocence. Yeah, I, I get or it. Or explain why others would lie about her. That That's not her place to do. I, I get it. I'm going to have to think on this because, uh, yeah, because the, uh, the other component or the other half with me is thinking, well, but wasn't there a load of other evidence proving her guilt? But it's just that, that her lawyers said, look, they asked her 18 times this question and that could create a bias in a juror's mind. Yeah. And that's, and that's why I'm saying like, that's why I gotta, I gotta process that. Yep. That's the law being the law. Yeah. Yeah. So Kelly Ellard was released on bail pending her retrial after serving only 18 months in Rena's death. Yeah. I remember when she was released. Yeah. Yeah. Kelly Ellard could not stay out of trouble, however. Kelly and a 19-year-old friend were drinking in a new Westminster park with a 58-year-old woman they'd invited there. Once in the park, the pair accused the older woman of stealing a cell phone, and the woman was badly beaten. Does this sound familiar? You know, it oddly does, yeah. I wonder, is there a pattern there somewhere? No, no. Okay. No. No, don't, you don't rest your mind. You rest your, your little Don't mind. lure people to beat them up. No, no, no. It's coincidental that it happened yeah. twice with her. Yeah. Kelly Ellard and her cohort were charged with assault causing bodily harm. On March 4, 2004, Ellard's bail was revoked and she was tossed back into jail to await her second murder trial. Woohoo! Back in jail. Yeah. On June 14, 2004, Kelly Ellard's second trial began. Again, the prosecution went to work trying to convict Kelly Ellard. More friends and witnesses testified to Kelly Ellard's bragging about murdering Rena. As the prosecution was wrapping its case, jurors heard dramatic testimony from the coroner who'd completed Rena's autopsy. From a CBC article on the case, Dr. Gray said, Verk would have been unconscious or in so much pain she wouldn't have been able to move. Gray also testified that if Verk hadn't drowned, it was unlikely she would have survived her brain injury. Well, yeah, you were saying there was a sh- like, literally a, a shoe outline yeah. o- on her brain. And bleed in her brain as yeah. well. Kelly again testified to her own defense. While she admitted she'd punched Rena when it came to the murder, deny, deny, deny was the word of the day. Of course. From court documents, Kelly's lawyer asked, Did you hold her underwater? No, said Ellard. Did you ever tell anyone you killed Rena Verk? No. Did you kill Rena Verk? No. <laughs> Ellard claimed that Warren Glowatsky and two other girls had killed Rena. She'd left and waited for the bus after the first fight. Yeah, mm, I'm calling shenanigans on that. The defense painted Warren Paul Glowatsky as the sole murderer in the case, with their last witness testifying, saying that Warren Glowatsky offered to pay her $3,000 to spread stories blaming Ellard for the murder of Rena Verk. Mm-hmm. The jury was instructed and sent out for deliberation. They were out for five days and came back hopelessly deadlocked. The jury said, We have exhausted all avenues of deliberation. We have reached an impasse that cannot result in a unanimous decision in spite of any further discussion. And apparently it was like 11 to 1. Oh, of course. On July 18th, 2004, Justice Romilly declared a mistrial in Kelly Ellard's second murder trial, <laughs> leaving the Crown with a decision to make. They had to decide whether or not they were going to take their chances and try Kelly Ellard a third time. Yeah, well, when you've had uh, two shots and they've failed. And it's expensive to do. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, definitely this is something they're going to ponder. 
ponder they did. And in February of 2005, Kelly Ellard went on trial for murder for the third time. And, and thank God, because in my opinion, I don't care the cost. This is, uh, yeah, the family needs this. Justice and closure, yeah. Yeah. This time, the star witness for the prosecution was none other than Warren Paul Glowatsky. He was still serving time for Rena's murder and had recently been denied parole himself. Warren Glowatsky shared details of how he and Kelly Ellard had followed Rena Verk after the first assault, then beaten and murdered her. Although the defense tried to poke holes in the now years-old memories of Crown witnesses, it was in vain. This time, the jury found Kelly Marie Ellard guilty of second-degree murder of Rena Verk. So she's found guilty a second time yeah. in three trials. It seems to me like maybe Warren testified against her this time because of... Uh, what she'd said. Yeah, her, yeah, her claims that, no, it was him. Yeah, and you know, paying people to, you know... Yeah, so he's finally like, you know what? I, I'm not going to cover for you. Yeah. Nope. During Ellard's sentencing, Justice Bauman said, I'm satisfied to the standard that Ms. Ellard seven years after the Verk murder, continues to place herself in situations which bring out her antisocial behavior. Yeah. She was clearly drinking with another inmate, and she was involved, I do not say criminally, that is for another judge, but she was involved in a scenario where a vulnerable individual was violently set upon in a group situation. Huh, again, that uh, pattern kind of a thing going on Interesting, there. Interesting, eh? yeah. yeah. No, nah, it's just a lot of coincidences. Just a coinkydink. Yeah. Also from court documents... Corrections records filed in this proceeding recorded this entry of Ms. Ellard on 2nd of February 2005, saying the inmate does not interact and socialize on the unit, but also spends a lot of time sleeping. Inmate has no ambition to attend any programs, yard, or school. Inmate made the statement, you guys made me like this, why should I do anything? Oh, fuck. Another perfect example of somebody passing the buck, except no accountability. Justice Bauman's response to that statement was this. No, Miss Ellard. Yes. You alone are responsible for your situation, and until you reach this elementary conclusion, you will not grow. You will not rehabilitate. You will be forever stalled in this nightmare which you have created. And boom goes the dynamite. And boom goes the dynamite. <laughs> yes, I love that was beautifully stated. There by are Justice some Bond. really amazing statements written in sentencing by judges here in Canada. We've, yeah, we've yeah, read a oh, number yes. of them. I, I have to just agree. Yeah, very eloquent and powerful. Yeah, yeah. Like she, like she just like that was a mic drop. Yeah, totally. Hellard was sentenced to life without parole eligibility for seven years. She was ordered to submit DNA for the National Database and banned from owning weapons for life. Kelly Ellard and her cocky punch-me face were sent back to the Who's Gal. Yeah, most photos I've seen of her, she's just constantly got this scowl. Yeah. Yeah. She's like uh, Travis Vader or Colin yeah. Thatcher. Yeah, yeah.-esque scowl. Yeah, yeah. Just you just you just see the photos and you're like, oh, I just I want a punch. I like I don't like this person. But guess what? Oh, shit. The nightmare was still not over. Of course not. On September 5th, 2008, the B.C. Court of Appeal overturned Ellard's second-degree murder conviction. My shit. They ordered a fourth trial. Holy crap. On the grounds that the judge in her third trial gave the jury wrong instructions. Holy shit. Over testimony. So can you imagine the Verks are like, again? They, like, they are having to be re-victimized over, over and, and over. over and over. It was not bad enough that they so brutally lost their daughter. Yeah. 
But due to fuck up after fuck up, they have to keep going through this. <sighs> this time, the case went to the Canadian Supreme Court, where on June 12, 2009, almost 12 years after Rena Verk's death, the second-degree murder conviction from the third trial was upheld <laughs> against the now 27-year-old <sighs> Kelly Ellard. This has to be it, right? It's got to be, Mike. It's got to be. No. Fuck off. On June 23, 2010... A now contrite Warren Paul Glowatsky was released on full parole. He apologized to the Verks. He has since participated in a documentary where he speaks of his part in the crime. What? So, yeah, I've seen bits and pieces of it, but I couldn't find the full documentary. Oh anywhere. wow, yeah, I'd like to check. And that he's out. very, very contrite about it. He's and was his act disgusting? Yes, but you're young, and I'm not beyond believing people can change their ways. Well, there were some more interesting things to come about for this case. Okay, oh, great. In October of 2016, it was announced that Kelly Marie Ellard, who had since changed her name to Carrie Marie Sim, that's right, Carrie Marie Sim is now her name, so... Interesting, Carrie Marie Carrie Sim. Marie Sim, yes. Carrie Marie Sim. Yep. Hmm. She was eight months pregnant behind bars. Oh, God. This was after a conjugal visit with her boyfriend, who also happened to be incarcerated at the time of the announcement. So you heard this right. Kelly Ellard, Carrie Marie Sim, is now a mom. I don't know what to say. Uh, like The completely emotional side of me says that if you've killed somebody's child, you should be prohibited from having a child, but I know that's just ridiculous. Yeah. But Because you took a life, you shouldn't be able to then give one. Yeah, Carol and I were talking about that the other day, and I said that exact same thing. Yeah, like, and, and I know it's irrational and not, uh, not a healthy thing, but emotionally, that's how I feel. In January of 2017, Kelly Ellard, Carrie Sim, applied for day parole, claiming she needed to attend medical appointments and take parenting programs after the birth of her child. Ellard claimed that motherhood had calmed her down. Oh, no. Even though Ellard finally admitted on the record that yes, she had beaten Rena and held her head underwater, the parole board found she was minimizing her crime and came across as entitled. Yes. She was denied parole at that time. Yes. There must have been some remarkable progress because in November of 2017, 20 years after Rena Verk's murder, Kelly Ellard was granted conditional day parole. No! Yep. Damn it. Sadly, in June of 2018, Suman Verk, Rena's mother and most outspoken advocate for justice, passed away due to a tragic accident. Oh, I didn't know that. Here's oh. some audio of Suman speaking out about dealing with emotions even 15 years after her daughter's death in 2012. For so long, we were consumed with the legalities of dealing with a murdered child. The courts, you know, prolonging the cases. And it's kind of like you put your feelings and your grief on hold. And I'm finding that now I'm feeling more of the impact of losing Rena, the emotions and feelings. So actually, I'm struggling more now and missing her more. I'm sad to say that the severity and the frequency of bullying is increasing instead of decreasing. And also, I think we're all shocked by the 
means that young people are using to bully their peers with cyberbullying and you know texting and all these things that were not there when Rena was killed. So there you go. Uh, 15 years after her daughter's death, she is struggling even worse. That is just so sad. That was just so sad. And to hear she passed away, it breaks my heart. But you, you can just hear in, in what she's saying, the constant re-victimization. She uh, sounded tired. Oh, God. Could you imagine, Mike? Yeah. Could you imagine decade of trials and getting your hopes up and then let down and getting them up and let down and hearing about this over and over. Yeah. In January of 2019, Kelly Ellard, who'd been residing in a halfway house, has had her day parole extended. She apparently works in marketing and sales in the halfway house and being a mom has motivated her to, quote, become a better person. Ellard's common-law husband, is behind bars again due to another parole infraction where he was in contact with other men who had criminal records, which was against his release conditions. Mm -hmm. The relationship between the two will be closely monitored for some time. The government-run home for runaway girls, Seven Oaks, where both Rena and Jay became acquainted, was closed soon after the killing, mm -hmm. and it's never reopened. That's it for this week's case. And what are your thoughts, Scott? Yeah, it, it's tragic. Like like many of the cases we've covered, I come into it with a pretty healthy knowledge and understanding, but your writing uh, takes it to a whole nother level of um, learning about the case. And it's just, it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. And we've talked about forgiveness before, and I, I don't think I could, uh, I don't think I could forgive Kelly Ellard. Mm. You know, I, I don't like... Uh, Being in her, in uh, the Verks position, you're saying? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, I, I don't think I would be... Um, but you never know. I, and I and, and I hope you never have to know. Oh, God, me too. And, and I hope I'm wrong, and I hope she genuinely has become contrite mm -hmm. and realizes what she has done and is becoming a better person, but... Something I'm, tells me that. I, I'm skeptical of it yeah, because of too. just the smugness and her, her lack of accountability for so long. But I have seen leopards change their spots true. over and over and over again. It's true. But and, and, and I'm amazed that what, ha what happened between February and November of 2017. Yeah, that's not a long time. No. You know, and, and yeah, it's, it's, there's a lot of times in life where I hope I'm wrong and I hope this is one of them. You know, I, I hope she genuinely has... Uh, uh, made the changes necessary, but yeah, I'm skeptical. There you go. Well, before we go, we want to give some shout outs to our new Patreon patrons. And there's a, a big gaggle of them again. It's a gang. Thanks to Megan French from Sacramento. She upped her pledge to PM status. Oh, we have an American prime minister. Yeah. Sweet. Oh, great. Actually two. We've got Amanda Blackburn from Grand Island, Nebraska. We just mentioned her, uh, I think last week. Sweet. She upped her pledge to PM what? status as well. So we got two American prime ministers. See, this is Canada. It's amazing. This is what happens in Canada. Yeah, you can become the prime minister of Canada if you were born somewhere else. Exactly. And, and, and pay your way in. Colleen Greenwood from Summerland, B.C. Hey, Colleen. Amanda Moore from Fowlerville, Michigan. Fowlerville. Hey, Amanda. Tanya Mina from Toronto, Ontario. Hey, Tanya. Aaron Grumbach from 
Vancouver, BC. Rocking, uh, representing our hood. There you Thanks, go. Thanks, Aaron. Kelly McCarthy from Franklin, Ohio. Hey, Kelly. Rachel Weiss from Long Island, New York. Sweet. Long Island. Sweet. We got a we got a new. She's uh, from Long, Long Island. Uh, I that was I don't know what accent that was. It's uh, Long Island. <laughs> Anyways, thanks, Rachel. <laughs> Monica Blood from Roseville, California. What a name. Heather Hiller from Clark Summit, Pennsylvania. Hey, Heather. Jillian Engstrom from Stony Plain, Alberta. Hey, Jillian. Uh, Brianna Stenz. Yep. She is from, uh, oh, geez, I think she's from Peru, is she not? Yeah, that's exactly where it. she is. Yeah, yeah. She has a PhD. Oh, in pan flutes. Wow. I know. So does she wear like the funny outfit that you see the Peruvian guys wearing? Like She's more flute? she's more modern. So a little fancier? Her, yeah, she's more modern in her, in her pan flute. And she probably doesn't smell like weed. No, no, no. And, and uh, you know, people often compare her to, to Zamfir. Wow. But only because that's the only pan flute player. They're really very different styles. Right. Hers is uh, yeah, much more much more modern, up-tempo current um some some funky uh rap yeah yeah it's just it's just great anyways go interesting go google or check her check out her brianna her, stens and her funky rap yeah playing uh pan flute yeah I, her newest album pan flute my way Peruvian. into your heart yeah. <laughs> you check it out it's great greg chandler from new haven pei hey greg Michelle Bryant from Leveland, Texas. Hey, Michelle. Stephen Kirkpatrick from London, Ontario. We mentioned him in the live show. Sweet. Lisa Semroska from Fort Lupton, Colorado. Thanks, Lisa. Jessica Brown from Lethbridge, Alberta. Jessica. Eli Arndt from Plymouth, Minnesota. Oh, sweet. Sweet. Julie Brady-Cook from Bloomington, Illinois. Illinois. Cynthia Cohn from Lincoln, Nebraska. Hey, Cynthia. Wait, lots of people from Nebraska. Yeah, I don't know what's going on. I don't. I like it. No, it's great, but it's just like, was there like, did did you pay for like some bus advertisement and didn't tell me? It's in the corn. It's, in the, it's like in what? the cornfields. You put subliminal advertising yeah, exactly. messaging in corn. Yeah. Oh, this is brilliant. And here's one that I don't quite get. Heathcliff the cat from Parma, Ohio. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, I... thank you, Heathcliff. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Derek LaMarche from Roseneath, Ontario. Hey, thanks, Derek. Our good friend Navara Good from Airdrie, Alberta, and we just Navarra. saw her at the uh, meetup again. I think this is, that was the third time I've met Navara. Totes a good egg. Uh, she I was, can say that from my one experience meeting her. She is a good egg. Yeah. Joanne Wilson from Victoria, BC, and she emailed me saying that she was surprised to find that she'd been murdered by Colin Thatcher. <laughs> I, I think I saw a post from her. <laughs> Thanks, Joanne. Glad you're still kicking. Yep. Uh, Chelsea Robinson. Yeah, yeah, Now, yeah. so Chelsea Robinson, is she the Mrs. Robinson that they're talking about in the song? Oh, she Here's did. to you, Mrs. Robinson. She didn't want us to mention that, Mike. Well. But now the cat's out of the bag. Mrs. Robinson, are you trying to seduce me? Uh, I'm going to let Carol answer that one. Okay. I'm staying out of this. Yep, that's I'm probably a good idea. I'm staying out of this, but yeah, that that is the one. Well, there you go. That is the one. And she, she's... Well, Dustin Hoffman, I don't know. He's a little short. He, I think he's even shorter than I am. Really? Yeah, he's a shrimp. Is he that little of a guy? Yeah. 
Wow. But they were only acting, Mike. They were actors. He was walking here, though. What do you mean? In, never mind. I don't get Midnight it. Midnight Cowboy. I'm walking oh, here. Oh, oh, yeah. okay. But yeah, that is, that's, uh, hello, Mrs. Robinson. <laughs> Here's to you, Mrs. Robinson. Exactly. Kevin Sullivan from Ottawa, Ontario. Hey, Kevin. Holly Maxwell. Yeah, yeah. Of Maxwell House? No, no. Oh, okay. No, no, no. Uh, her family owned the Maxwell cassette tapes uh, manufacturers. Oh, is yeah. that the one with the guy with the hair blowing back? No, see, that's, and that's that. Yes, it is, but that's, it's not a guy. That was, that was her. That was Holly. That was Holly. Well, that's an interesting mustache. She it has. was, well, she, like, they tried to make her seem like they disguised oh. it. They, oh. they, they were trying to, like, they were trying to have some tomfoolery on set I there. Gotcha. But the people don't know that that's actually, isn't yes, it Maxell? Let's not get bogged down in the semantics, semantics of okay. it, Mike. Let's okay. not, no, it, no, no, it wasn't. The chrome tapes. Yeah, those? I do. Yeah. I do. I do. She also handmade those. There you go. Yeah. Katie McGuire from Kew Gardens, New York. Hey, Katie. And another Katie, Katie Zuck from Paris, Ontario. There's a, a sequence of Katie's here. Yeah. And then finally, the last patron of the week is Kimberly Howlett from Cambridge, in Great Britain. Sweet. Pip, pip tally ho. Yeah. Uh, put another shrimp on the barbie? No. no. That's, that's a different. No. Uh, yeah, it's not, a spot yeah. of tea. Yeah. 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 Cheerio. <laughs> not leather cheerio though. Oh, Mike. Oh, speaking of which though, they have, uh, oh, I got to say quickly, they have uh, Oreo Cheerios. Oh, well, how about them apples? That's amazing. Thanks so much to our patrons, past and present, for your pledges. We really appreciate your support of the show. Danke schön. Thanks again to Tyler for doing our intro, uh, our uh, disclaimer this week. So cool. Yeah, we're so gonna cool. we're gonna just run that at the beginning of the show every week now. Uh, if you want to help support the show, you can do so at Patreon.com/slash/DarkPatine or for one-time support, you can send us some donut money via PayPal at our email address, darkpatinepodcast at gmail.com. And we, we did get some email. We get we did get yeah, some donut money this week. That's right from Mark Dobrovolowski. Sweet, and Mark. he was kind enough to email me some very co fine compliments as well. Oh, how nice is that? Because we do go nuts for donuts. <laughs> go nuts for donuts. Ew. If you don't already, it would mean a lot to us if you subscribe to the show. You can easily find us on iTunes, Podcast, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, or wherever you get your on-demand audio. Hell, like us on all of them. Check out our website, darkpoutine.com, for show notes and other cool stuff. We'll have more pictures and nonsense there next week, or this week, uh, for this particular episode. Yep. Please give us a follow or a like on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just search for Dark Poutine. And most importantly, and this is working wonders, tell your friends. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. It's our best marketing tactic. Join us in our closed Facebook groups, the Umber Yard and the Barn Yard. The Barn Yard is dedicated to animals and the Umber Yard dedicated to animals. <laughs> <laughs> Different sort. Uh, so there you go. Woo. Until next week. Don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye-bye, everybody. Chowder. <laughs>